The Gay Old Dog by Edna Ferber from the Metropolitan Magazine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Gay Old Dog Those of you who have dwelt or even lingered in Chicago, Illinois, this is not a humorous story, are familiar with the region known as The Loop. For those others of you to whom Chicago is a transfer point between New York and San Francisco, there is presented this brief explanation. The Loop is a clamorous, smoke-infested district embraced by the iron arms of the elevated tracks. In a city boasting fewer millions, it would be known familiarly as downtown. From Congress to Lake Street, from Wabash almost to the river, those thunderous tracks make a complete circle or loop. Within it lie the retail shops, the commercial hotels, the theaters, the restaurants. It is the Fifth Avenue, diluted, and the Broadway, deleted, of Chicago. And he who frequents it by night in search of amusement and cheer is known vulgarly as a loophound. Joe Hertz was a loophound. On the occasion of those sparse first nights granted the metropolis of the Middle West, he was always present, third row, aisle left. When a new Loop Cafe was open, Joe's table always commanded an unobstructed view of anything worth viewing. On entering, he was wont to say, Hello, Gus, with careless cordiality to the head waiter, the while his eye roved expertly from table to table as he removed his gloves. He ordered things under glass, so that his table at midnight or thereabouts resembled a hotbed that favors the bell system. The waiters fought for him. He was the kind of man who mixes his own salad dressing. He liked to call for a bowl, some cracked ice, lemon, garlic, paprika, salt, pepper, vinegar, and oil, and make a right of it. People at nearby tables would lay down their knives and forks to watch, fascinated. The secret of it seemed to lie in using all the oil in sight and calling for more. That was Joe, a plump and lonely bachelor of fifty, a plethoric, roving-eyed and kindly man, clutching vainly at the garments of a youth that had long slipped past him. Joe Hertz, in one of those pinch-waist belted suits and a trench coat and a little green hat, walking up Michigan Avenue of a bright winter's afternoon, trying to take the curb with a jaunty youthfulness against which every one of his fat-encased muscles rebelled, was a sight for mirth or pity depending on one's vision. The gay dog business was a late phase in the life of Joe Hertz. He had been a quite different sort of canine. The staid and harassed brother of three unwed and selfish sisters is an underdog. The tale of how Joe Hertz came to be a loophound should not be compressed within the limits of a short story. It should be told as are the photo plays, with frequent throwbacks and many cut-ins. To condense twenty-three years of a man's life into some five or six thousand words requires a verbal economy amounting to parsimony. At twenty-seven, Joe had been the dutiful, hard-working son in the wholesale harness business of a widowed and gummaging mother who called him Joey. If you had looked close, you would have seen that now and then a double wrinkle would appear between Joe's eyes, a wrinkle that had no business there at twenty-seven. Then Joe's mother died, leaving him handicapped by a deathbed promise, the three sisters, and a three-story and basement house on Calumet Avenue. Joe's wrinkle became a fixture. 
Deathbed promises should be broken as lightly as they are seriously made. The dead have no right to lay their clammy fingers upon the living. Joey, she had said in her high, thin voice, take care of the girls. I will, Ma, Joe had choked. Joey, and the voice was weaker, promise me you won't marry till the girls are all provided for. Then, as Joe had hesitated, appalled, Joey, it's my dying wish, promise. I promise, Ma, he had said, whereupon his mother had died comfortably, leaving him with a completely ruined life. They were not bad-looking girls, and they had a certain style, too. That is, Stell and Ava had. Carrie, the middle one, taught school over on the west side. In those days, it took her almost two hours each way. She said the kind of costume she required should have been corrugated steel. But all three knew what was being worn, and they wore it, or fairly faithful copies of it. Ava, the housekeeping sister, had a needle knack. She could skim the state street windows and come away with a mental photograph of every separate tuck, hem, yoke, and ribbon. Heads of departments showed her the things they kept in drawers, and she went home and reproduced them with the aid of a two-dollar-a-day seamstress. Stell, the youngest, was the beauty. They called her Babe. She wasn't really a beauty, but someone had once told her that she looked like Janice Meredith. It was when that work of fiction was at the height of its popularity. For years afterward, whenever she went to parties, she affected a single fat curl over her right shoulder with a rose stuck through it. Twenty-three years ago, one's sisters did not strain at the household leash, nor crave a career. Carrie taught school and hated it. Ava kept house expertly and complainingly. Babe's profession was being the family beauty, and it took all her spare time. Ava always let her sleep until ten. This was Joe's household, and he was the nominal head of it, but it was an empty title. The three women dominated his life. They weren't consciously selfish. If you had called them cruel, they would have put you down as mad. When you are the lone brother of three sisters, it means that you must constantly be calling for, escorting, or dropping one of them somewhere. Most men of Joe's age were standing before their mirror of a Sunday night, whistling blithely and abstractedly while they discarded a blue polka dot for a maroon tie, whipped off the maroon for a shot silk, and at the last moment decided against the shot silk in favor of a plain black and white because she had once said she preferred quiet ties. Joe, when he should have been preening his feathers for conquest, was saying, Well, my God, I am hurrying. Give a man time, can't you? I just got home. You girls have been laying around the house all day. No wonder you're ready. He took a certain pride in seeing his sisters well-dressed at a time when he should have been reveling in fancy waistcoats and brilliant-hued socks, according to the style of that day and the inalienable right of any unwed male under thirty in any day. On those rare occasions when his business necessitated an out-of-town trip, he would spend half a day floundering about the shop selecting handkerchiefs or stockings or feathers or fans or gloves for the girls. They always turned out to be the wrong kind, judging by their reception, from Carrie. What in the world do I want of a fan? I thought you didn't have one, Joe would say. I haven't. I never go to dances. Joe would pass a futile hand over the top of his head, as was his way when disturbed. I just thought you'd like one. I thought every girl liked a fan. Just, feebly, just to, to have. Oh, for pity's sake. And from Ava or Babe, I've got silk stockings, Joe. Or you brought me handkerchiefs the last time. There was something selfish in his giving, as there always is in any gift freely and joyfully made. 
They never suspected the exquisite pleasure it gave him to select these things, these fine, soft, silken things. There were many things about this slow-going, amiable brother of theirs that they never suspected. If you had told them he was a dreamer of dreams, for example, they would have been amused. Sometimes, dead tired by nine o'clock after a hard day downtown, he would doze over the evening paper. At intervals he would wake, red-eyed, to a snatch of conversation such as, Yes, but if you get a blue, you can wear it anywhere. It's dressy, and at the same time, it's quiet, too. Ava, the expert, wrestling with Carrie over the problem of the new spring dress. They never guessed that the commonplace man in the frayed old smoking jacket had banished them all from the room long ago. Had banished himself, for that matter. In his place was a tall, debonair, and rather dangerously handsome man to whom six o'clock spelled evening clothes. The kind of man who can lean up against a mantle, or propose a toast, or give an order to a manservant, or whisper a gallant speech in a lady's ear with equal ease. The shabby old house on Calumet Avenue was transformed into a brocaded and chandeliered rendezvous for the brilliance of the city. Beauty was there, and wit, but none so beautiful and witty as she, Mrs. Joe Hertz. There was wine, of course, but no vulgar display. There was music, the soft sheen of satin, laughter, and he, the gracious, tactful host, king of his own domain. Joe, for heaven's sakes, if you're going to snore, go to bed. Why, did I fall asleep? You haven't been doing anything else all evening. A person would think you were fifty instead of thirty. And Joe Hertz was again just the dull, gray, commonplace brother of three well-meaning sisters. Babe used to say petulantly, Joe, why don't you ever bring home any of your men friends? A girl might as well not have any brother all the good you do. Joe, conscience-stricken, did his best to make amends. But a man who had been petticoat-ridden for years loses the knack, somehow, of comradeship with men. He acquires, too, a knowledge of women, and a distaste for them, equaled only, perhaps, by that of an elevator starter in a department store. Which brings us to one Sunday in May. Joe came from a late Sunday afternoon walk to find company for supper. Carrie often had in one of her schoolteacher friends, or Babe, one of her frivolous intimates, or even Ava, a staid guest of the old girl type. There was always a Sunday night supper of potato salad and cold meat and coffee and perhaps a fresh cake. Joe rather enjoyed it being a hospitable soul, but he regarded the guests with the undazzled eyes of a man to whom they were just so many petticoats, timid of the night streets and requiring escort home. If you had suggested to him that some of his sister's popularity was due to his own presence, or if you had hinted that the more kittenish of these visitors were palpably making eyes at him, he would have stared in amazement and unbelief. This Sunday night it turned out to be one of Carrie's friends. Emily, said Carrie, this is my brother Joe. Joe had learned what to expect in Carrie's friends, drab-looking women in the late thirties whose facial lines all slanted downward. Happy to meet you, said Joe, and looked down at a different sort altogether. A most surprisingly different sort for one of Carrie's friends. This Emily person was very small and fluffy and blue-eyed and sort of, well, crinkly-looking, you know? The corners of her mouth when she smiled and her eyes when she looked up at you and her hair, which was brown, but had the miraculous effect somehow of being gold. Joe shook hands with her. Her hand was incredibly small and soft, so that you were afraid of crushing it until you discovered she had a firm little grip all her own. 
It surprised and amused you, that grip, as does a baby's unexpected clutch on your patronizing forefinger. As Joe felt it in his own big clasp, the strangest thing happened to him. Something inside Joe Hurt stopped working for a moment, then lurched sickeningly, then thumped like mad. It was his heart. He stood staring down at her, and she up at him, until the others laughed. Then their hands fell apart, lingeringly. Are you a schoolteacher, Emily? he said. Kindergarten. It's my first year. And don't call me Emily, please. Why not? It's your name. I think it's the prettiest name in the world. Which he hadn't meant to say at all. In fact, he was perfectly aghast to find himself saying it. But he meant it. At supper, he passed her things and stared until everybody laughed again, and Ava said acidly, Why don't you feed her? It wasn't that Emily had an air of helplessness. She just made you feel you wanted her to be helpless so that you could help her. Joe took her home, and from that Sunday night he began to strain at the leash. He took his sisters out dutifully, but he would suggest with a carelessness that deceived no one, don't you want one of your girlfriends to come along? That little, what's her name, Emily or something? So long's I've got three of you, I might as well have a full squad. For a long time he didn't know what was the matter with him. He only knew he was miserable and yet happy. Sometimes his heart seemed to ache with an actual physical ache. He realized that he wanted to do things for Emily. He wanted to buy things for Emily, useless, pretty, expensive things that he couldn't afford. He wanted to buy everything that Emily needed and everything that Emily desired. He wanted to marry Emily, that was it. He discovered that one day with a shock in the midst of a transaction in the harness business. He stared at the man with whom he was dealing until the startled person grew uncomfortable. What's the matter, Hertz? Matter? You look as if you'd seen a ghost or found a gold mine, I don't know which. Gold mine, said Joe, and then, no, ghost for he remembered that high, thin voice and his promise. And the harness business was slithering downhill with dreadful rapidity as the automobile business began its amazing climb. Joe tried to stop it, but he was not that kind of businessman. It never occurred to him to jump out of the down-going vehicle and catch the up-going one. He stayed on, vainly applying brakes that refused to work. You know, Emily, I couldn't support two households now, not the way things are. But if you'll wait, if you'll only wait, the girls might, that is, Babe and Carrie. She was a sensible little thing, Emily. Of course I'll wait, but we mustn't just sit back and let the years go by. We've got to help. She went about as if she were already a little matchmaking matron. She corralled all the men she had ever known and introduced them to Babe, Carrie, and Ava separately, in pairs and en masse. She arranged parties at which Babe could display the curl. She got up picnics. She stayed home while Joe took the three about. When she was present, she tried to look as plain and obscure as possible so that the sisters should show up to advantage. She schemed and planned and contrived and hoped and smiled into Joe's despairing eyes. And three years went by, three precious years. Carrie still taught school and hated it. Ava kept house, more and more complainingly as prices advanced and allowance retreated. Stell was still babe, the family beauty, but even she knew that the time was past for curls. Emily's hair somehow lost its glint and began to look just plain brown. Her crinkliness began to iron out. Now look here, Joe argued, desperately one night. We could be happy anyway. There's plenty of room at the house. Lots of people begin that way. Of course, I couldn't give you all I'd like to at first, but maybe after a while. 
no dreams of salons and brocade and velvet-footed servitors and satin damask now just two rooms all their own all alone and emily to work for that was his dream but it seemed less possible than that other absurd one had been you know that emily was as practical a little thing as she looked fluffy she knew women especially did she know ava and carrie and babe she tried to imagine herself taking the household affairs and the housekeeping pocket-book out of ava's expert hands ava had once displayed to her a sheaf of aigrettes she had bought with what she saved out of the housekeeping money so then she tried to picture herself allowing the reins of joe's house to remain in ava's hands and everything feminine and normal in her rebelled emily knew she'd want to put away her own freshly laundered linen and smooth it and pat it she was that kind of woman she knew she'd want to do her own delightful haggling with butcher and vegetable peddler she knew she'd want to muss joe's hair and sit on his knee and even quarrel with him if necessary without the awareness of three ever-present pairs of maiden eyes and ears no no we'd only be miserable i know even if they didn't object and they would joe wouldn't they his silence was miserable assent then but you do love me don't you emily oh i do joe i love you and love you and love you but joe i can't i know it dear i knew it all the time really i just thought maybe somehow the two sat staring for a moment into space their hands clasped then they both shut their eyes with a little shudder as though what they saw was terrible to look upon emily's hand the tiny hand that was so unexpectedly firm tightened its hold on his and his crushed the absurd fingers until she winced with pain that was the beginning of the end and they knew it emily wasn't the kind of girl who would be left to pine there are too many joes in the world whose hearts are prone to lurch and then lump at the feel of a soft fluttering incredibly small hand in their grip one year later emily was married to a young man whose father owned a large pie-shaped slice of the prosperous state of michigan that being safely accomplished there was something grimly humorous in the trend taken by affairs in the old house on calumet for ava married of all people ava married well too though he was a great deal older than she she was off in a hat she had copied from a french model at fields and a suit she had contrived with a home dressmaker aided by pressing on the part of the little tailor in the basement over on thirty-first street it was the last of that though the next time they saw her she had on a hat that even she would have despaired of copying and a suit that sort of melted in your gaze she moved to the north side trust ava for that and babe assumed the management of the household on calumet avenue it was a rather pinched little household now for the harness business shrank and shrank i don't see how you can expect me to keep house decently on this babe would say contemptuously babe's nose always a little inclined to sharpness had whittled down to a point of late if you knew what ben gives ava it's the best i can do sis business is something rotten ben says if you had the least bit of ben was ava's husband and quotable as are all successful men i don't care what ben says shouted joe goaded into rage i'm sick of your everlasting ben go and get a ben of your own why don't you if you're so stuck on the way he does things and babe did she made a last desperate drive aided by ava and she captured a rather surprised young man in the brokerage way who had made up his mind not to marry for years and years 
Ava wanted to give her her wedding things, but at that, Joe broke into sudden rebellion. No, sir. No Ben is going to buy my sister's wedding clothes, understand? I guess I'm not broke yet. I'll furnish the money for her things, and there'll be enough of them, too. Babe had as useless a trousseau and as filled with extravagant pink and blue and lacy and frilly things as any daughter of doting parents. Joe seemed to find a grim pleasure in providing them, but it left him pretty well pinched. After Babe's marriage, she insisted that they call her Estelle now. Joe sold the house on Calumet. He and Carrie took one of those little flats that were springing up seemingly overnight all through Chicago's south side. There was nothing domestic about Carrie. She had given up teaching two years before and had gone into social service work on the west side. She had what is known as a legal mind, hard, clear, orderly, and she made a great success of it. Her dream was to live at the settlement house and give all her time to the work. Upon the little household she bestowed a certain amount of grim, capable attention. It was the same kind of attention she would have given a piece of machinery whose oiling and running had been entrusted to her care. She hated it and didn't hesitate to say so. Joe took to prowling about department store basements and household goods sections. He was always sending home a bargain in a ham or a sack of potatoes or 50 pounds of sugar or a window clamp or a new kind of paring knife. He was forever doing odd little jobs that the janitor should have done. It was the domestic in him claiming its own. Then one night, Carrie came home with a dull glow in her leathery cheeks and her eyes alight with resolve. They had what she called a plain talk. Listen, Joe, they've offered me the job of first assistant resident worker, and I'm going to take it. I know fifty other girls who'd give their ears for it. I go in next month. They were at dinner. Joe looked up from his plate dully. Then he glanced around the little dining room with its ugly tan walls and its heavy dark furniture, the Calumet Street pieces fitted cumbersomely into the five-room flat. Away? Away from here, you mean? To live? Carrie laid down her fork. Well, really, Joe, after all that explanation. But to go over there to live? Why, that neighborhood's full of dirt and disease and crime and Lord knows what else. I can't let you do that, Carrie. Carrie's chin came up. She laughed a short little laugh. Let me. That's 18th century talk, Joe. My life's my own to live. I'm going. And she went. Joe stayed on in the apartment until the lease was up. Then he sold what furniture he could, stored or gave away the rest, and took a room on Michigan Avenue in one of the old stone mansions whose decayed splendor was being put to such purpose. Joe Hertz was his own master, free to marry, free to come and go, and he found he didn't even think of marrying. He didn't even want to come or go, particularly. A rather frumpy old bachelor with thinning hair and a thickening neck. Much has been written about the unwed middle-aged woman, her fussiness, her primness, her angularity of mind and body. In the male, that same fussiness develops, and a certain primness, too. But he grows flabby where she grows lean. Every Thursday evening he took dinner at Ava's, and on Sunday noon at Stell's. He tucked his napkin under his chin and openly enjoyed the homemade soup and the well-cooked meats. After dinner he tried to talk business with Ava's husband or Stell's. His business talks were the old-fashioned kind, beginning, Well, now, look here. Take, for instance, your all hides and leathers. But Ben and George didn't want to take, for instance, your all hides and leathers. They wanted, when they took anything at all, to take golf or politics or stocks. They were the modern type of businessman who prefers to leave his work out of his play. 
Business with them was a profession, a finely graded and balanced thing, differing from Joe's clumsy downhill style as completely as does the method of a great criminal detective differ from that of a village constable. They would listen restively and say, uh-huh, at intervals, and at the first chance they would sort of fade out of the room with a meaning glance at their wives. Ava had two children now, girls. They treated Uncle Joe with good-natured tolerance. Stell had no children. Uncle Joe degenerated, by almost imperceptible degrees, from the position of honored guest, who is served with white meat, to that of one who is content with a leg and one of those obscure and bony sections which, after much turning with a bewildered and investigating knife and fork, leave one baffled and unsatisfied. Ava and Stell got together and decided that Joe ought to marry. It isn't natural, Ava told him. I never saw a man who took so little interest in women. Me, protested Joe, almost shyly. Women? Yes, of course. You act like a frightened schoolboy. So they had in for dinner certain friends and acquaintances of fitting age. They spoke of them as splendid girls between thirty-six and forty. They talked awfully well in a firm, clear way about civics and classes and politics and economics and boards. They rather terrified Joe. He didn't understand much that they talked about, and he felt humbly inferior, and yet a little resentful, as if something had passed him by. He escorted them home dutifully, though they told him not to bother, and they evidently meant it. They seemed capable, not only of going home quite unattended, but of delivering a pointed lecture to any highwayman or brawler who might molest them. The following Thursday, Ava would say, How did you like her, Joe? Like who? Joe would spar feebly. Miss Matthews? Who's she? Now don't be funny, Joe. You know very well I mean the girl who was here for dinner, the one who talked so well on the emigration question. Oh, her. Why, I liked her, all right. Seems to be a smart woman. Smart? She's a perfectly splendid girl. Sure, Joe would agree cheerfully. I can't say I did, Eve, and I can't say I didn't. She made me think a lot of a teacher I had in the fifth reader, name of Himes. As I recall her, she must have been a fine woman, but I never thought of her as a woman at all. She was just teacher. You make me tired, snapped Ava impatiently. A man of your age. You don't expect to marry a girl, do you? A child? I don't expect to marry anybody, Joe had answered. And that was the truth, lonely though he often was. The following year, Eve moved to Winnetka. Anyone who got the meaning of the loop knows the significance of a move to a North Shore suburb and a house. Ava's daughter, Ethel, was growing up, and her mother had an eye on society. That did away with Joe's Thursday dinner. Then Stell's husband bought a car. They went out into the country every Sunday. Stell said it was getting so that maids objected to Sunday dinners anyway. Besides, they were unhealthy, old-fashioned things. They always meant to ask Joe to come along, but by the time their friends were placed and the lunch and the boxes and sweaters and George's camera and everything, there seemed to be no room for a man of Joe's bulk, so that eliminated the Sunday dinners. Just drop in any time during the week, Stell said, for dinner. Except Wednesday, that's our bridge night, and Saturday, and, of course, Thursday. Cook is out that night. Don't wait for me to phone. And so Joe drifted into that sad-eyed, dyspeptic family made up of those you see dining in second-rate restaurants, their paper propped up against the bowl of oyster crackers, munching solemnly and with indifference to the stare of the passers-by surveying them through the brazen plate-glass window.
And then came the war, the war that spelled death and destruction to millions, the war that brought a fortune to Joe Hertz and transformed him overnight from a baggy-kneed old bachelor whose business was a failure to a prosperous manufacturer whose only trouble was the shortage in hides for the making of his product. Leather. The armies of Europe called for it. Harnesses. More harnesses. Straps. Millions of straps. More. More. The musty old harness business over on Lake Street was magically changed from a dust-covered dead-alive concern to an orderly hive that hummed and glittered with success. Orders poured in. Joe Hertz had inside information on the war. He knew about troops and horses. He talked with French and English and Italian buyers, noblemen, many of them, commissioned by their countries to get American-made supplies. And now, when he said to Ben or George, take, for instance, your all hides and leathers, they listened with respectful attention. And then began the gay dog business in the life of Joe Hertz. He developed into a loop hound, ever keen on the scent of fresh pleasure. That side of Joe Hertz, which had been repressed and crushed and ignored, began to bloom unhealthily. At first he spent money on his rather contemptuous nieces. He sent them gorgeous fans and watch bracelets and velvet bags. He took two expensive rooms at a downtown hotel, and there was something more tear-compelling than grotesque about the way he gloated over the luxury of a separate ice water tap in the bathroom. He explained it. Just turn it on. Ice water. Any hour of the day or night. He bought a car, naturally, a glittering affair in color a bright blue, with pale blue leather straps and a great deal of gold fittings and wire wheels. Ava said it was the kind of thing a soubrette would use rather than an elderly businessman. You saw him driving about in it, red-faced and rather awkward at the wheel. You saw him, too, in the Pompeian room at the Congress Hotel of a Saturday afternoon, when doubtful and roving-eyed matrons in Kalinsky capes are wont to congregate to sip pale amber drinks. Actors grew to recognize a semi-bald head and the shining, round, good-natured face looming out at them from the dim well of the parquette, and sometimes in a musical show they directed a quip at him, and he liked it. He could pick out the critics as they came down the aisle, and even had a nodding acquaintance with two of them. Kelly, of the Herald, he would say carelessly, Bean of the Trib, they're all afraid of him. So he frolicked ponderously. In New York, he might have been called a man about town. And he was lonesome. He was very lonesome. So he searched about in his mind and brought from the dim past the memory of the luxuriously furnished establishment of which he used to dream in the evenings when he dozed over his paper in the old house on Calumet. So he rented an apartment, many-roomed and expensive, with a manservant in charge, and furnished it in styles and periods ranging through all the Louis. The living room was mostly rose color. It was like an unhealthy and bloated boudoir. And yet there was nothing sybaritic or uncleanly in the sight of this paunchy middle-aged man sinking into the rosy-cushioned luxury of his ridiculous home. It was a frank and naive indulgence of long-starved senses, and there was in it a great resemblance to the rolling-eyed ecstasy of a schoolboy smacking his lips over an all-day sucker. The war went on and on and on, and the money continued to roll in, a flood of it. Then one afternoon, Ava, in town on shopping bent, entered a small, exclusive, and expensive shop on Michigan Avenue. Exclusive, that is, in price. 
Ava's weakness, you may remember, was hats. She described what she sought with a languid conciseness and stood looking about her after the saleswoman had vanished in quest of it. The room was becomingly rose-illumined and somewhat dim, so that some minutes had passed before she realized that a man seated on a raspberry brocade settee, not five feet away, a man with a walking stick and yellow gloves and tan spats and a check suit, was her brother Joe. From him, Ava's wild-eyed glance leapt to the woman who was trying on hats before one of the many long mirrors. She was seated, and a saleswoman was exclaiming discreetly at her elbow. Ava turned sharply and encountered her own saleswoman returning, hat-laden. Not today, she gasped. I'm feeling ill, suddenly, and almost ran from the room. That evening she told Stell, relating her news in that telephone pigeon English devised by every family of married sisters as protection against the neighbors and central. Translated, it ran thus. He looked straight at me. My dear, I thought I'd die, but at least he had sense enough not to speak. She was one of those limp, willowy creatures with the greediest eyes that she tried to keep softened to a baby's stare and couldn't. She was so crazy to get her hands on those hats. I saw it all in one awful minute. You know the way I do. I suppose some people would call her pretty. I don't. And her color, well, and the most expensive-looking hats, aigrets and paradise and feathers, not one of them under seventy-five. Isn't it disgusting at his age? Suppose Ethel had been with me. The next time it was Stell who saw them, in a restaurant. She said it spoiled her evening, and the third time it was Ethel. She was one of the guests at a theater party given by Nicky Overton II, you know, the North Shore Overtons, Lake Forest. They came in late and occupied the entire row at the opening performance of Believe Me, and Ethel was Nicky's partner. She was glowing like a rose. When the lights went up after the first act, Ethel saw that her Uncle Joe was seated just ahead of her with what she afterward described as a blonde. Then her uncle had turned around and seen her, had been surprised into a smile that spread genially all over his plump and rubicund face. Then he had turned to face forward again quickly. Who's that old bird? Nicky asked. Ethel had pretended not to hear, so he had asked again. My uncle, Ethel answered, and flushed all over her delicate face and down to her throat. Nicky had looked at the blonde and his eyebrows had gone up ever so slightly. It spoiled Ethel's evening. More than that, as she told her mother of it later, weeping, she declared it had spoiled her life. Ava talked it over with her husband in that intimate kimonoed hour that precedes bedtime. She gesticulated heatedly with her hairbrush. It's disgusting, that's what it is. Perfectly disgusting. There's no fool like an old fool. Imagine a creature like that at his time of life. There exists a strange and loyal kinship among men. Well, I don't know, Ben said now, and even grinned a little. I suppose a boy's got to sow his wild oats sometime. Don't be any more vulgar than you can help, Ava retorted. And I think you know as well as I what it means to have that Overton boy interested in Ethel. If he's interested in her, Ben blundered, I guess the fact that Ethel's uncle went to the theater with someone who wasn't Ethel's aunt won't cause a shudder to run up and down his frail young frame, will it? All right, Ava had retorted. If you're not man enough to stop it, I'll have to do it, that's all. I'm going up there with Stell this week. They did not notify Joe of their coming. Ava telephoned his apartment when she knew he would be out and asked his man if he expected his master home to dinner that evening. 
The man had said yes. Ava arranged to meet Stell in town. They would drive to Joe's apartment together and wait for him there. When she reached the city, Ava found turmoil there. The first of the American troops to be sent to France were leaving. Michigan Boulevard was a billowing, surging mass. Flags, pennants, bands, crowds, all the elements that make for demonstration. And over the whole, quiet. No holiday crowd, this. A solid, determined mass of people waiting patient hours to see the khaki clads go by. Three years of indefatigable reading had brought them to a clear knowledge of what these boys were going to. Isn't it dreadful? Stell gasped. Nicky Overton's only nineteen, thank goodness. Their car was caught in the jam. When they moved at all, it was by inches. When at last they reached Joe's apartment, they were flushed, nervous, apprehensive, but he had not yet come in. So they waited. No, they were not staying to dinner with their brother, they told the relieved houseman. Joe's home has already been described to you. Stell and Ava sunk in rose-colored cushions, viewed it with disgust and some mirth. They rather avoided each other's eyes. Carrie ought to be here, Ava said. They both smiled at the thought of the austere Carrie in the midst of those rosy cushions and hangings and lamps. Stell rose and began to walk about restlessly. She picked up a vase and laid it down, straightened a picture. Ava got up, too, and wandered into the hall. She stood there a moment, listening. Then she turned and passed into Joe's bedroom. And there you knew Joe for what he was. This room was as bare as the other had been ornate. It was Joe, the clean-minded and simple-hearted, in revolt against the cloying luxury with which he had surrounded himself. The bedroom of all rooms in any house reflects the personality of its occupant. True, the actual furniture was panelled, Cupid surmounted, and ridiculous. It had been the fruit of Joe's first orgy of the senses. But now it stood out in that stark little room with an air as incongruous and ashamed as that of a pink tarlatan Danuse who finds herself in a monk's cell. None of those wall pictures with which bachelor rooms are reputed to be hung. No satin slippers, no scented notes, two plain-backed military brushes on the chiffonier, and he so nearly hairless. A little orderly stack of books on the table near the bed. Ava fingered their titles and gave a little gasp. One of them was on gardening. Well, of all things, exclaimed Stell, a book on the war by an Englishman, a detective story of the lurid type that lulls us to sleep, his shoes ranged in a careful row in the closet, with shoe trees in every one of them. There was something speaking about them. They looked so human. Ava shut the door on them quickly. Some bottles on the dresser, a jar of pomade, an ointment such as a man uses who is growing bald and is panic-stricken too late, an insurance calendar on the wall, some rhubarb and soda mixture on the shelf in the bathroom, and a little box of pepsin tablets. Eats all kinds of things at all hours of the night, Ava said, and wandered out into the rose-colored front room again with the air of one who is chagrined at her failure to find what she has sought. Stell followed her furtively. Where do you suppose he can be, she demanded. It's... She glanced at her wrist. Why, it's after six. And then there was a little click. The two women sat up, tense. The door opened. Joe came in. He blinked a little. The two women in the rosy room stood up. Why, Eve, why, babe, well, uh, why didn't you let me know? We were just about to leave. We thought you weren't coming home. Joe came in slowly. I was in the jam on Michigan, watching the boys go by. He sat down heavily. The light from the window fell on him, and you saw that his eyes were red. And you'll have to learn why. 
He had found himself one of the thousands in the jam on Michigan Avenue, as he said. He had a place near the curb where his big frame shut off the view of the unfortunates behind him. He waited with the placid interest of one who has subscribed to all the funds and societies to which a prosperous middle-aged businessman is called upon to subscribe in wartime. Then, just as he was about to leave, impatient at the delay, the crowd had cried with a queer, dramatic, exultant note in its voice, Here they come! Here come the boys! Just at that moment, two little futile frenzied fists began to beat a mad tattoo on Joe Hertz's broad back. Joe tried to turn in the crowd, all indignant resentment. Say, look a here! The little fists kept up their frantic beat and pushing, and a voice, a choked, high little voice, cried, Let me by, I can't see you, man, you, you big fat man, my boy's going by to war, and I can't see, let me by. Joe scrooged around, still keeping his place. He looked down, and upturned to him in agonized appeal was the face of little Emily. They stared at each other for what seemed a long, long time. It was really only the fraction of a second. Then Joe put one great arm firmly around Emily's waist and swung her around in front of him. His great bulk protected her. Emily was clinging to his hand. She was breathing rapidly as if she had been running. Her eyes were straining up the street. Why, Emily, how in the world? I ran away. Fred didn't want me to come. He said it would excite me too much. Fred, my husband, he made me promise to say goodbye to Joe at home. Joe's my boy, and he's going to war, so I ran away. I had to see him. I had to see him go. She was dry-eyed. Her gaze was straining up the street. Why, sure, said Joe. Of course you want to see him. And then the crowd gave a great roar. There came over Joe a feeling of weakness. He was trembling. The boys went marching by. There he is, Emily shrilled above the din. There he is, there he is, there he... And waved a futile little hand. It wasn't so much a wave as a clutching, a clutching after something beyond her reach. Which one? Which one, Emily? The handsome one, the handsome one there. Her voice quavered and died. Joe put a steady hand on her shoulder. Point him out, he commanded. Show me. And the next instant, never mind, I see him. Somehow, miraculously, he had picked him from among the hundreds, had picked him as surely as his own father might have. It was Emily's boy. He was marching by rather stiffly. He was nineteen and fun-loving, and he had a girl, and he didn't particularly want to go, and to go to France. But more than he had hated going, he had hated not to go. So he marched by, looking straight ahead, his jaw set so that his chin stuck out just a little. Emily's boy. Joe looked at him and his face flushed purple. His eyes, the hard-boiled eyes of a loophound, took on the look of a sad old man. And suddenly he was no longer Joe, the sport, old Jay Hertz, the gay dog. He was Joe Hertz, thirty, in love with life, in love with Emily, and with the stinging blood of young manhood coursing through his veins. Another minute and the boy had passed on up the broad street, the fine flag-bedecked street, just one of a hundred service hats bobbing in rhythmic motion like sandy waves lapping ashore and flowing on. Then he disappeared altogether. Emily was clinging to Joe. She was mumbling something over and over. I can't. I can't. Don't ask me to. I can't let him go like that. I can't. Joe said a queer thing. 
Why, Emily? We wouldn't have him stay home, would we? We wouldn't want him to do anything different, would we? Not our boy. I'm glad he volunteered. I'm proud of him. So are you glad. Little by little, he quieted her. He took her to the car that was waiting, a worried chauffeur in charge. They said goodbye, awkwardly. Emily's face was a red, swollen mass. So it was that when Joe entered his own hallway half an hour later, he blinked, dazedly, and when the light from the window fell on him, you saw that his eyes were red. Ava was not one to beat about the bush. She sat forward in her chair, clutching her bag rather nervously. Now look here, Joe. Stell and I are here for a reason. We're here to tell you that this thing's got to stop. Thing? Stop? You know very well what I mean. You saw me at the milliner's that day, and night before last, Ethel. We're all disgusted. If you must go about with people like that, please have some sense of decency. Something gathering in Joe's face should have warned her. But he was slumped down in his chair in such a huddle, and he looked so old and fat that she did not heed it. She went on. You've got us to consider, your sisters and your nieces, not to speak of your own. But he got to his feet then, shaking and at what she saw in his face even Ava faltered and stopped. It wasn't at all the face of a fat middle-aged sport. It was a face jovian and terrible. You, he began, low-voiced, ominous. You, he raised a great fist high. You two murderers, you didn't consider me twenty years ago. You come to me with talk like that? Where's my boy? You killed him, you two, twenty years ago. And now he belongs to somebody else. Where's my son that should have gone marching by today? He flung his arms out in a great gesture of longing. The red veins stood out on his forehead. Where's my son? Answer me that, you two selfish, miserable women. Where's my son? Then as they huddled together, frightened, wild-eyed, out of my house, out of my house before I hurt you, they fled, terrified. The door banged behind them. Joe stood shaking in the center of the room. Then he reached for a chair gropingly and sat down. He passed one moist, flabby hand over his forehead, and it came away wet. The telephone rang. He sat still. It sounded far away and unimportant, like something forgotten. I think he did not even hear it with his conscious ear, but it rang and rang insistently. Joe liked to answer his phone when at home. Hello? He knew instantly the voice at the other end. That you, Joe? It said. Yes. How's my boy? I'm all right. Listen, Joe, the crowd's coming over tonight. I fixed up a little poker game for you, just eight of us. I can't come tonight, Gert. Can't? Why not? I'm not feeling so good. You just said you were all right. I am all right, just kind of tired. The voice took on a cooing tone. Is my Joey tired? Then he shall be all comfy on the sofa, and he doesn't need to play if he doesn't want to, no, sir. Joe stood staring at the black mouthpiece of the telephone. He was seeing a procession go marching by. Boys, hundreds of boys in khaki. Hello? Hello? The voice took on an anxious note. Are you there? Yes, wearily. Joe, there's something the matter. You're sick. I'm coming right over. No. Why not? You sound as if you'd been sleeping. Look here. Leave me alone, cried Joe suddenly, and the receiver clacked under the hook. Leave me alone. Leave me alone long after the connection had been broken. He stood staring at the instrument with unseen eyes. Then he turned and walked into the front room. All the light had gone out of it. Dusk had come on. 
All the light had gone out of everything. The zest had gone out of life. The game was over. The game he had been playing against loneliness and disappointment. And he was just a tired old man. A lonely, tired old man in a ridiculous rose-colored room that had grown all of a sudden drab. End of The Gay Old Dog by Edna Ferber This LibriVox recording is in the public domain.